You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We continue our worship now by turning to our sermon text which is Psalm 36. So I invite you to turn there. We read from the Psalter earlier, from Psalm 1. Psalms are the big book in the middle of our Bibles with 150 Psalms. And we're in the 36th one this morning. As we've been going one by one, as I've had opportunity to preach, we come to Psalm 36 this morning. William Swan Plummer says Psalm 36 is a composition of rare excellence, and I concur. And as we read, maybe if you listen to Christian music in the 90s and 2000s, you'll agree with me. I can't get out of my mind the sound of Mac Powell's voice in Third Day as he sings Your Love, O Lord. Maybe you know that song. There's many songs where, that are quoting this text. It's a well-known text, a wonderful text. I pray we can all grow deeper in Christ today through it. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 36, and we'll read it in its entirety. Hear now the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogance of the the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Grass withers, flower fails, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. One of the major themes we see in the book of Psalms is this theme of helping us to make sense of two things that don't readily make sense in our minds. On the one hand, we have these incredible promises of God, salvation, eternal life, hope, and joy, this guaranteed blessing we have in God's presence. And if you remember, Psalm 1 and 2 are something of an introduction to the whole Psalter. They, they, they frame the entire Psalter in these categories of ultimate things, these ultimate blessings, these ultimate promises. But then on the other hand, We have the fallenness of the world that we live in, our own sinful condition apart from Christ, and our ongoing sin after we know him. 
the sins of other people as they come and affect us, trials and sufferings. So we have these two things. We don't know readily how to make sense of them. On the one hand, we have the promises and the glories of knowing Christ. On the other hand, we have the difficulties of this present life. These two things don't appear to us to be congruent. And so how do we make sense of them? Psalm Psalm 2, remember recounting these wonderful, great promises. It ends with this, this grand conclusion. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in God's anointed son. Blessed, and that's exactly how Psalm 1 began as we read. Blessed is this man. You are blessed if you look to Christ. But then we turn to Psalm 3. And the realities of the world just hit the psalmist upside the head. Because Psalm 3, right after that rousing conclusion, blessed are all, it starts like this. O Lord, how many are my foes? So what is it? Are we blessed or not? And Psalm 36 is wrestling with this exact same thing. God's promises in light of this world we live in, how do we make sense of this? One of the keys to this psalm is this word, it's one Hebrew word translated in the English as steadfast love. You see it in verse five and verse seven. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. In verse seven, how precious is your steadfast love. This concept is so important in all of scripture, but particularly in this psalm. Some translations translate it mercy. Maybe if you're King James Bible, you know. It's translated mercy. And it's actually the, the Greek translation of the old Hebrew it uses the word Mercy. Loving kindness is another translation. Unfailing love or love, simply love in the NIV. One translator says faithful love, which I like as well. This word steadfast love that we'll we'll use that version uh, today, it's, it's not a generic term for love, but it is a highly specialized term for the way God relates to his people. It's used over 275 times in the Old Testament. 75% of those times is describing God's steadfast love towards men and women. And one commentator says it has a strongly relational aspect. This is not a love that's, that's merely keeping people at arm's length. This isn't simply somebody who's generous and gives money to people asking for money beside, who stand beside the road every time he passes by. It's not simply a generous benefactor who gives money and then steps away. This is a deeply relational word that's grounded in a covenantal bond. There's a couple characteristics that are listed by this commentator, say that this word, steadfast love, talks about saving from disaster or adversaries, simply kind of an external saving, how God works to, to help us and rescue us in this life. Steadfast love indicates a preservation of life in general. But more deeply, it gets to the reality that God is saving us from his just wrath. We're getting now to the eternal components to this word steadfast love. It is an eternal love of God that is set upon his people, and it is the very basis by which men can approach God. But it also draws us to God. It draws us to praise him. It's an abundant love, and it characterizes God's rule over his people and establishes his kingship over us. Steadfast love. And this abundance of God's steadfast love, this steadfast love is given freely as we'll see, to all who know God and take refuge in him. There's four movements of this psalm that we'll work through. And the first movement is verses one through four. Steadfast love rejected. 
Second is verses five and six, steadfast love displayed. Verses seven through nine, steadfast love experienced. And then finally, steadfast love continued. Verses 11 through 12, 10 through 12. Steadfast love rejected and then displayed and then experienced and then continued. So let's work through these four movements as they come in our psalm. Let's first consider our opening four verses, the steadfast love of God that's been rejected. David opens the psalm by considering a direct threat to himself. And we find out later, this is a threat. These wicked people are a threat to David. And so he considers this wicked person, the wicked who has transgression speaking deeply in his heart. In the Psalms, the wicked are those who are not trusting in God, in God's promises. We see all this all the way back in Psalm 1 that we read earlier. They're the ones who reject him, the ones who reject the offer of the gospel. This is everyone who does not believe in Christ. And and David helps us unpack the nature of unbelief here. And he begins saying this, this wicked person has no fear of God before his eyes. There's no recognition of the authority of God. Man's accountability to him. Man is detached from any higher authority, and thus man is autonomous. Man can do whatever he pleases. Man is now his own God. That's the foundation. That's, that's the, that's, that, that is what wicked people base their lives on. This false view that they are autonomous. There's no God. And this leads to a wrong view of himself in verse 2. Because they don't believe in God, because they don't believe there's any accountability, this wicked person is now flattering himself in his own eyes. He cannot know who he truly is. He cannot know what he's designed to be without knowing God. And so he flatters himself. He thinks too great of himself because he doesn't understand who he truly is. And then verse 2 goes on. He flatters himself that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He thinks he can hide those things that are evil. He thinks he can hide those things that are socially unacceptable. He thinks he can get away. He's so great. He thinks he can get away pretending those are not an issue. He can get away with his secret sins. This actually indicates that there still is something deep that testifies to him that this is wrong. He's trying to hide it because he knows this is wrong. This does violate the very image of God that he was endowed with. Because it violates his creator. It's contrary to his ways and his will. But nevertheless, the evil person is trying to hide and push it down and thinks nobody is ever going to find out his sin. And so to keep these secret sins afloat, verse 3 shows his, his words and actions are trouble and deceit. There's no wisdom, there's no good in all that he does. See how this foundation, no fear of God, leads to not understanding yourself, not understanding the world around you, and it leads to doing no good. Even on his bed, even in rest, he's devising evil, verse four. And it ends with these sober sober words. He does not reject evil. This is describing David's adversaries, those who are working against him, those who are plotting against him, those who are saying evil things about him. As the Psalms continually attest to, some of the very most hurtful things are the sins that other people commit against us. And David isn't stuffing it down, but David is saying, this is the fullness of evil. He's not being hyperbolic. He's not exaggerating, but he's honestly pouring out his hurt to God. Saying, I know the works that they're doing are not good, but I know it's rooted deeper. It's not just the actions. This is a heart issue. 
where they refuse to look to God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But it don't, doesn't just describe David's adversaries. It's also describing the, our state and every person's state apart from Christ. Fundamentally, they're adversaries because they reject God's steadfast love. They believe that the offer of the gospel is foolish, unnecessary, or requires too much humility on their part. And even in Christ, we look back and we realize there's sinful patterns and sinful roots in our hearts. We need to uproot, that we need to destroy, we need to work to kill because we still see these sinful schemes in our own lives. David's looking at the trials he's undergoing. He's looking at the realities of the world around him. He's seeing the difficulty and the brokenness. But he doesn't sit there forever because he moves to this next section. He's pivoting. So let's turn from steadfast love rejected to steadfast love displayed. But before here, take a pause. Get ready because what's coming next is the greatest contrast we can imagine. David's painting this dark, dark picture of wickedness, of sin, of its effects in the world around us. David's moving his eyes off of the threats, off the wickedness, and moves to this ultimate perspective here. He's saying, I see what's going on around me, but I'm going to look up. I'm going to take my eyes up. And this is what he does when he looks at the steadfast love of God's displayed, uh, steadfast love of God on display. There's four back-to-back metaphors these verses, five and six, two short verses, but they're using, they're used to describe God's actions, God's steadfast love and rapid fire succession. He starts like this in verse five, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. You notice there's a massive pivot. There's no transition. He's now stopping looking at the world around him and he looks immediately up. I see the wickedness. They are not rejecting evil, but your steadfast love, your goodness extends the heavens. Remember, for the Israelites, the, the heavens, the visible heavens, were a place that, that the Israelites couldn't imagine going. They couldn't imagine reaching up and touching. And now our world of technology and airplanes and space travel and all these things, the, the, the heavens are just the beginning for us. But imagine, this is the highest high imaginable for David. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. God's steadfast love is so vast and so high that it cannot be grasped and to which there is no end. Likewise, his faithfulness, your faithfulness, he says, is to the clouds. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. And this shows us that God is always going to act in accordance with his steadfast love. He's faithful. He doesn't change course. He's not on a whim does he lash out against you. He doesn't deviate from the promised steadfast love. Even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. Steadfast love faithful. Verses, numbers three and four verse, come in verse six. It says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. He compares the righteousness of God and, and God's justice. He uses the word judgments here, but speaking of God's justice, comparing those two to mountains and the depths of the sea, these two unshakable things, unmovable. And there's a mystery and an awe attached to the highest high and the lowest low. God acts rightly and justly in every circumstance. Even if for a while he is patient and forbearing with sin in this life, there will be zero wrong things that go unpunished. 
His justice will make sure that everything is given its due reward. And this, David says, you can count on and take it to the bank. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. He has that final tag on there, man and beast you save. I don't think he's speaking here of salvific saving here. But I think this is God's preservation and promise to, to, after the flood of Noah, we promise to preserve the world. He's saving all things from the judgment that is rightfully due even now. He's praising God for his patience, his preserving of all things, man and beast and all creation until that final day. And so we all live under that common grace of God. For without it, we would never have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. So he's praising God even for his common grace for man and beast, giving opportunity to the wicked to come to Christ. How much relief there is to know that this God is king. In light of this wickedness, the attacks that he feels so sharply, how wonderful is it to know this God is supreme. This God is on the throne. This God will never change or deviate. He's one you can count on, one you can find refuge in. And this leads him to praise. That's why this is directed towards God. Your steadfast love, O Lord. This is an act of praise. Recounting the goodness of God is praising his name. We're not deserving. This isn't something we can earn. This isn't something that we are good enough for. This isn't something that we're given by right of birth into the church. This is something that we receive from Christ when we look to him in faith. But David doesn't keep this even at an arm's length. He doesn't say it's enough to simply know about God. He says we need to experience the steadfast love. So we turn to verses seven through nine. The steadfast love is experienced and we see David unpacking that and explaining what it's like to experience the steadfast love of God. And there's so many words here denoting closeness and the comfort that he has because the steadfast love is precious, really important, important and intimate word. It's valuable. He refers to himself and others as children of mankind. He talks about himself as, as a little child who's dependent upon God. And what does he do? He takes refuge in the shadow of God's wings. What a beautiful picture this is, like chicks being protected by a mother hen in her nest. That's the kind of care that God has for his people. When the storms are out and the rain is pounding, and the wind is, is howling, there's the mother hen who cares for her children, who with her wings shelters them and protects them and preserves them in the torrents of the trials of life. Our Lord cares and is protecting you. He knows you. He knows your every need. He knows your every trial, and he cares for you. His steadfast love promises it we can experience it. But also we see in these verses, the abundance of God's love. I love verse eight. They feast. These are these children of mankind who are, who are in the shadow of, of God's wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. I can think of a few really, really terrific meals I've had shared them with Erica. You go to a wonderful restaurant, wonderful meal, and it's fantastic, and you have a great time together. But 
sometimes when you're paying for your own meal, it's more of a transactional thing you're having. The, the food itself is, isn't, isn't as great as it is when there's a host. When somebody invites you into their home or invites you to a meal and they say, this food is a demonstration of my love and care for you. Right? When you go by yourself, you're just paying them in the back and they do the work because you're paying them. But when a host does this, even if the host is the one paying them, what they're saying, this food is now a vehicle for you to understand my relationship to you, for me to understand my love for you. And this is the picture of God as our host, setting a table of the finest food and the greatest meal, showing us the abundance that he has in store for us. No good thing does he withhold from his people. Everything good is here for us to participate in. And same with this drinks, the drink, the drink from the river of your delights. David knows this. David understands the delight and the abundance because he's fixed upon God's steadfast love. He's fixed upon God's promises. He looks to God. It's precisely because in the moment of the storm around him, it's precisely because in that moment he looks to God that he experiences this. Because it now contextualizes his suffering in this life. It's not ultimate. It doesn't have the final say. It is not his ultimate hope. His hope is greater. His hope is beyond this. And this ultimate contentment shows up in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. These are metaphors of totality and completeness, perfection, and the necessity of salvation. Without God's life, we have no life. Without his light, there is no light. Oh, how every single kindness of God should be counted and stored up to allow us to deeply experience this as an expression of his love for us. Every good thing he does, we should ponder and consider and thank him for and savor it because that is God's gift of his steadfast love to you. And David is doing that. He's remembering what God has done and ultimately, at the end of verse 9, he's, he's really saying, if these things are true, what can happen to me? I have light, I have life. These metaphors for that eternal completeness. I have these things. What can happen to me? What, who can assail me? What threats are true threats? And these themes of light and life, as we read earlier in John 1, are themes connected directly to the person of Jesus Christ. Who is it that is life abundant? Who gives life abundant? It is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the light of the world but the man, Jesus Christ? And because of this salvation from him, the justification that we have, being forgiven of our sins and the declaration of righteousness, it renders us now in God's sight perfect and complete. Christians, you're not waiting for some final day of justification to come. You have been justified when you look to Christ. It's not get him by grace and stay him by works. You, today, looking to him, are justified. And that final day, the judgment is simply the open declaration of the judgment that's already been rendered. You are justified. You 
are forgiven and you are righteous. In light of this, can we face the trials in our life? This is the basis of our experience of God's steadfast love. If we don't grasp these things, we will have difficulty grasping experientially the depth of his love, who Christ is and what he's done. David pivots again and returns to the trials of the world around him with these final three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. We've seen steadfast love rejected, steadfast love displayed, steadfast love experienced, and now he pleads for steadfast love continued. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. In light of God's steadfast love, he turns to his situation again. He looks out and says, Lord, continue your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, I know I can persevere if you continue your steadfast love on me. I'm simply claiming and clinging to the promise, your steadfast love being eternal, your faithfulness, you will never waver. He's simply praying the promises of God back to him. What if we did this? What would your life look like? if we soberly looked at our trials and situations in life in light of God's steadfast love? What if it wasn't our situations that define how we feel, but it's God's love that defines who we are, what we do, and how we feel? What if instead of in the moment reacting with our defensiveness and with our anger, and with our complaining, we instead turn to the one who is steadfast love himself? and let his truths speak over me and tell me what is true and what is right and what is good. And now I can respond to one even who sinned against me in love and kindness instead of hatred. This would profoundly change my life if this was consistently lived out day in and day out. But David shows us what it's like. He knows he will not be overcome by the wicked. He knows what has the final say. He knows to whom he belongs. He knows the steadfast love of God. So he prays that that would never leave him. Then he ends on the final note of verse 12, resting on God's justice, ultimately. It says, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And again, this is not language where he's, he has personal uh, vendetta against these people. But this is a statement of ultimate and final judgment. Those who continue and persist in their wickedness, who do not respond to God's steadfast love and faith, they will fall. There, that point of their sin, they will die right there and they will be dead in their sin. They're thrust down, they will be unable to rise. It's a euphemism for that final judgment that is on its way, that is so sure. The justice of God cannot permit the wicked to go unpunished. And so resting in that judgment, resting in God's justice, David knows the wicked will not prevail. They might harm, it's only for a minute. They cannot truly hurt us. So David puts that ultimate mindset still at the front of his mind. He's still thinking about the end. He's saying right now is not all there is. He takes solace in the final judgment. It's not because David himself is righteous, but because he knows he stands protected in the shadows of the wings of the righteous one because of Christ. The striking statement Jesus makes. It's 
Luke chapter 13. I'm going to conclude here. Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, that beloved city, the city of David, the seat of the kingship of Israel. And he's in deep distress. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is appropriating this language, this this concept, this idea, this metaphor from Psalm 36 of the shadow of the wings of God being the place of refuge. Jesus says, I was willing to do this for you. But what? You were not willing. You were not willing. That day of destruction is coming because they were not willing to come to the one who is providing that salvation. They will not seek refuge in the shadow of the wings of Christ. Who is not willing today. May this not be said of you on that final day. You were not willing Because today, hear this, that Jesus Christ says, come to the shadow of my wings and at the cross, I will save you. Your sins will be forgiven. My righteousness becomes yours. And from this day on, my steadfast love is yours. You can count on it. You can be sure. This Psalm shows us the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. So this day, Christian, you can find refuge in his wings. The storm that's going around you, look up for a moment. As we're about to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the trials, the sickness, the illness, the ruptured relationships, all these things are important, but they become strangely dim in the light of your glory grace. Jesus Christ stands willing. He will redeem all who come to him. Christian, take heart. He is yours. Steadfast love belongs to you and those without Christ. Come to him. Trust in him. Find refuge in him this day. Let us look to him in prayer. Thank you, O Lord, that you have shown us your steadfast love that you have shown us that in this life you will preserve us and keep us by your steadfast love, your relentless love because of Christ. Lord, we praise you. We sing this, that your steadfast love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Continue your steadfast love. Oh, how precious it is to us. May we know it from here, henceforth forevermore. Keep us, O Lord. Preserve us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.